Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in different workplace settings, and we also look at key themes that we believe are relevant. I'm Susan Peacock from the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre. I'm one of the facilitators of the Mindfulness in the Workplace program, and today we are going to be discussing mindfulness within the context of a hospital setting. I'm delighted to welcome my guest, who is Florian Ruths. Florian is a consultant psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital in London. He has published in the areas of MBCT, anxiety and depression. He and his colleague Sterling Murray have been delivering MBCT courses for patients with chronic depression and anxiety for over 15 years. He has also designed a program based on MBCT for health professionals, designed to improve compassion, well-being, and resilience. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Florian and Sterling initiated an online mindfulness offering for staff called Mindfulness for All Staff. So, Florian, a huge welcome to you, and thank you. You're welcome. Great. Thank you so much Great. for inviting me. Oh, lovely. I'm always really interested to know how people became involved in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about how you personally became passionate about mindfulness? Well, it all started for me uh, when I became passionate about cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, in the early 2000s, I was just a registrar in psychiatry and I developed an interest in, in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, did a course there. And as part of that course, I was taught by John Teasdale, who, um, who was, was professor at that time in Cambridge, and he had developed the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program. Um, and so I started reading his paper and then I started hearing about it from other you know, sources and I thought, hmm, this sounds quite interesting. I should test it out for myself. And uh, I happened to be um, sort of at that time being hard done by, I felt very hard done by because I was sent to Maidstone to do some work at Maidstone. And I thought, this is awful. I have to travel to Maidstone, you know, three or four times a week. And that's terrible. Uh, but I was on my motorcycle. So I thought I might as well use that time while I'm motorcycling to do a bit of mindful motorcycling, you know, listening to sounds and feeling, you know, feeling the wind and, and you know, being overtaken by other travelers. And then and suddenly I sort of got into my first sort of tentative meditation practice. And then I thought, well, I need to probably explore that further. And then I started meditating, got a tape from John Kabat-Zinn, started doing sitting meditations. And then I eventually I had to see John, you know, I had to think, oh, I want to meet this guy. Uh, I went to his retreat in California. And uh, that's when I felt I was ready to deliver some mindfulness myself. So that's how it all started. Oh, what a great story. It almost feels like the title of a book, Motorcycling into Mindfulness. And I love how you describe your personal connection with it. And from that place, you then took it further. Really just so inspiring to hear that. And I'd be very interested to hear a little bit about your mindfulness activity at the Maudsley Hospital. So how did you go from that personal recognition of how beneficial this could be to offering mindfulness within your workplace context? 
Well, you know, from that moment when I sort of went to the retreat with John Kabat-Zinn, I thought, well, maybe I should just start delivering the program, at least testing it for myself. Can I do this? So I started, I contacted Mark Williams in Oxford, who at that time was, you know, had enough time to, for me, uh, to talk to me. <laughs> uh, he had developed the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program. And I said, oh, you know, John, uh, Mark, I want to, I want to uh, deliver this at the Maudsley. Will you help me? And he said, fine, you know, just, just do it. And then I'll bring me and I'll give you a bit of supervision. And that's how it all started. I started developing uh, a program for my colleagues first. I thought uh, I want to test it on my colleagues first. So I don't do much harm to my poor patients. Um, uh, so I had, a, you know, for a couple of years, we did it with colleagues. And then we, in you know, Sterling and I, we started delivering it for, for patients all went from there really and uh, we haven't stopped ever since we've been doing this for the last 15 16 years now and um oh, yeah wow. so, so interesting so you went you know you you were working with people like mark williams with john cavitson and then you connected with this then offered it to colleagues and from there offered it to patients. Uh, so it sounds like a really interesting journey where you've got these different groups and, and now widening it out to the broader hospital population. So I'd be curious, you're a psychiatrist, a doctor and a therapist. How are doctors different from other professions and how are they similar? Doctors are different from others in some ways uh, you know I gave a talk many years ago to psychologists about what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist and the first thing I said is psychiatrists do on-call work uh, and that's what all doctors do we we are on call when things are really really difficult um, and so so doctors in a way you know, in comparison to other health professions, particularly psychologists, we are often, you know, up at three o'clock in the morning when patients are really acutely unwell. And I like to sometimes say that um, I meet a lot of very high functioning professionals who work in the city and have got responsibility for millions of pounds, or I meet high professional, highly professionalized lawyers who've got, you know, very important cases. But when they get things wrong, nobody dies. Mm. Um, you know there's might be money lost or a case lost but um, when thing when doctors get things wrong then there is often a life and death situation and that puts a lot of pressure on doctors uh, so um, we don't want to get things wrong because you know people will suffer and they will suffer really and it can be a life and death situation now in that sense we're not only separate from other professions we're obviously also similar to other professions because there's not we're not the only ones that look after life and death you know there's the train drivers you know the pilots you know the the air traffic controllers you know when they get it wrong uh, you know people die um, and so, so we, we sometimes forget that as doctors. <laughs> yeah. I think we have got very high professional standards. People come often with excessively high professional standards from very early childhood. People come with very, very high standards of needing to perform, needing to be always, you know, at the top of their game and, you know, feeling very, very anxious that if, you know, we don't, we don't do well, then terrible things will happen. And sometimes we forget that there are other professionals that are a bit similar to, to that as well, but I think that sets the scene for doctors being a, 
a group of people who are, are under a lot of sort of felt pressure. Sometimes it's a bit more felt than it, it is real, but I think this is where I took an interest in, in, in my colleagues uh, coming there, obviously for myself. Um, how can we actually help to relieve some of the pressure and look after ourselves better under mm. that pressure? <clears throat> mm, wonderful, wonderful. And I think, you know, one of the, the things that we touched on in our pre-preparatory mm. meeting was how people go into the medical profession because you want to make people feel better. And yet there is dealing with death. And I know in this COVID pandemic, I was talking to somebody who was in, in an ICU unit as a patient. And she was just commenting on how incredibly struck by the professionalism of the staff. And they were saying how overwhelmed they were because they'd come into this to make people better and people were dying and how incredibly difficult that was. So I'm wondering how mindfulness supports people with that area of, of the work that you sometimes have to deal with? Well, yes, uh, I, I think this is a, a very, very important point. I mean, there is, there is uh, you know, it's a sort of a, a virtual war that, that we are sort of waging against illness and against suffering. And we're really trying to win that war. And, and uh, you know, often we do. Uh, as health professionals, uh, you know, both nurses, you know, doctors, you know, radiologists, mm -hmm. physiotherapists, you know, sometimes we win battles, but there's a lot of battles we lose. And the, the losing battles are, you know, the worst outcome is death, mm -hmm. which is, you know, terrible. Nobody likes to, to, to lose a patient. And we also lose patient in, patients in psychiatry sometimes, which is, which is terrible. Um, but there's often also the situation of the chronic illness mm -hmm. where you fight battles and, you just don't get people necessarily better. And, and so how do we sit with the chronicity of a problem? How do we sit with something that we cannot resolve? And I think this is where mindfulness comes in because, you know, when you're in a fighting mode, and I think medicine is a, is a fighting mode, um, how do you deal with when, when we can't fight anymore, when you can't do sort of more fighting? How do you sit with that space that cannot be changed? And I think that's a very uncomfortable space for a lot of us, um, a lot of professionals, but for doctors and, and health professionals in particular. And I think, you know, what, what my aim has been when I sort of started working with doctors is very much sort of creating more space for that. How do we sit with things we can't change? How can we still be present with that? How can we not see it as a defeat of ourselves? How can we not see it as a slight of our professionalism? Uh, or as a sort of dent to our sort of professional ethos. How can we see it as part of what we do and how can we do it professionally and, you know, sustaining ourselves in it? We don't like to see people yeah, suffer. <clears throat> yeah. And that feels so important to equip medical professionals with those skills. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to know how you've adapted the original MBCT training to suit people working in this particular medical context? Well, the first thing we did when we developed the program was asking people, what do you think is going wrong for you? Mm. <laughs> what do you think is the need? And, and, and the young doctors, very, very good, all very enthusiastic, very, very dedicated people. They said, you know, you, we don't feel valued anymore. Mm -hmm. We feel undervalued, we feel ignored, we feel sort of 
you know, we, we, you know, we, we, we don't feel sustained. And, 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 and there was obviously a real problem that's been picked up. The doctors just drop out of the career or they, they leave the career at least temporarily and they just you know, they, they burn out, you know, whatever burnout may mean in a way that they develop sort of emotional sort of, you know, problems in, in the career, not being sustained, but, you know, the demands being excessively high. So, so the aim was really just how can we create a program that involves mindfulness that is doctor orientated, so yeah. really understands their needs from the way I understand it. And so I, I very much thought about how can I develop a program that is much more explicitly about helping us to be emotional in the workplace, to be regulating our own emotions in the workplace, to look after ourselves and our emotions in the workplace. And so the program has shifted quite significantly uh, from, from the original sort of program that we had for, for patients, you know, that was mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my colleagues are normally not ill, so I didn't call it therapy, I called it uh, sort of skill training. And uh, it, 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 it goes around themes of what I felt might be interesting to doctors. Um, and one theme would be obviously, how do I look after my emotions better? What are emotions? So there's a lot about emotionality. There's a lot about how well, how we pay attention and we're all, particularly the young doctors, obviously is very screen orientated. And, and so that will influence our emotional well-being. There's a lot in, you know, in the program about emotional needs. You know, if there's emotions, you know, if emotions exist, how do they look like and what do they need? What do our emotions need? And, and, and the ethos really is, can we sort of make our emotional life almost like we, 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 we look after our bodies reasonably well you know we go to the gym and we, we feed ourselves well and we dress ourselves well but how do we look after our emotions better so so the program is very much geared around that and you know as you said earlier you know doctors have to deal with death and they have to deal with you know chronic illness how do we how do we deal with our own vulnerability our own fragility our own humanity in the whole thing and how do we see ourselves in that context so the, these are the themes that are being explored. We're dipping our toes into the water, really, and that nothing gets explored in a, in a great depth. You know, like the NBC program is, in that sense, not a deep program because it's only 16 hours. There's only so much you can do in 16 hours, but we're trying to really get people interested. Brilliant, brilliant. And that leads me on to my next question, which is how do people um, respond to the invitation to attend a training like this? So we were initially delivering this as a pilot. Uh, that meant we offered it out of hours uh, and we had a sort of about 25 doctors sort of coming for that pilot program. We were quite excited that they made extra time in their, in their busy schedules to actually come and attend the program. But as we developed the program, we were really lucky because we were allowed to deliver it within working hours. Um, so we are asking you know, with a, with a small M, we're, we're making it mandatory uh, to attend. Uh, we basically saying you're being paid. Let's just come along. <laughs> um, and so people are coming. Still, some of them aren't. And there are reasons why not, because they might, they might interfere with other things that they do. But we're really encouraging people just make it, make time for it and come Ooh. along. And so overall, our, our feedback has been very, very good. Uh, we've taken some initial data uh, you know, to get a bit of you know objective feedback from the questionnaires and all the rest of it. Um, so we found that people's mindful awareness improves, and you know, to some degree, people's resilience 
improves uh, through the program. So, so we can we can also see in preliminary data that people actually do respond to it. But but more more powerful, I think, is the um, sort of more uh, sort of verbal feedback that we get, and, and people you know, make comments that's really ch changed their uh, sort of awareness of themselves, become more aware of what's going on with themselves. They take more time in appreciating what's, what's good in their career. Uh, so a lot of little things in the in the program helps helps people. And, and Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It just sounds as if, you know, this this focus in, in, in a medical profession is often on taking care of the other, but this opportunity to really take care of yourself and how that then supports you to be there for the people around you. It sounds like such important work, Florian. Well, you know, there was a Francis report in the, you know, about five years ago, which was basically about a, call, a hospital had, had failed and had, you know, lots of people had died. And, uh, and the Francis basically then wrote a, you know, report that led to the NHS constitution. And one of the, you know, one of the words in the constitution was, we need compassionate care. Mm. Um, that was the first time that I had heard the word compassion in a, in a medical professional context. So compassion has become much more topical in the NHS. And I think, you know, it's easy to say we should be more compassionate, be compassionate to others. But how do we actually do that? Yeah, exactly. And it yeah. starts at home. Yeah, yeah, it starts with taking care of yourself. And then from there, it ripples out. I'm really curious as to the Mindfulness for All staff online training that you've been offering since the start of the pandemic. I mean, that sounds like an incredible offering and was just interested to know a little bit more about that. Well, it was, you know, mid-March, uh, oh. we all went into lockdown and I saw, you know, my colleagues, you know, in, in medicine going into A&E, looking after people with COVID, uh, you know, going to the intensive care units and, and, you know, I've got a dermatologist colleague of mine who basically then had to do acute medicine, you know, I mean, she's a she's a physician, but, you know, she had to be almost re, uh, reposted. And, and I, 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 I talked to Holly and say, you know, I, I'm going to come in and, and put in Venflons and, and take bloods if necessary. You know, I'm a psychiatrist, but, you know, if, 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 if quiet, what can I do to, to, to help the situation? What can I do in person? Uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, we all were asked to work from home and I felt almost like, oh God, this is really, really strange, isn't it? My colleagues are going there risking their lives to look after patients and I'm sitting here at home. And I thought, well, there's nothing, I'm probably, probably not a lot of help to them if I went there um, putting in Venflons, but I could perhaps help them by basically kind of giving them something that they could all use to support themselves. So I, um, I went on email and I got my colleagues involved and said, guys, can we just deliver a mindfulness program for our colleagues on a day-to-day -day basis? So every day at 8.30, we just do a bit of meditation with them. So uh, thankfully, a lot of people um, that I know, you know, do mindfulness, you know, came up and saying, yeah, that's a good idea. And so I had a daily program over many months until the you know, first lockdown ended. And then we went to a weekly program. We call it Mindfulness for All, M for All, we called it. M4. And so we had a daily mindfulness program and, and we use it as a sort of you know, playful way to obviously connect to people's experiences saying, you know, I mean, we know we're going, you're going through a tough time, you know, how can we 
sort of support you? How can you support yourself, you know, under, you know, in these times of uncertainty? And then we started developing diff different topics around, you know, this is what meditation is, this is what the breath is, this is what the body is, this is what hearing is. And then we expanded into sort of compassion focused sort of sessions and, you know, talking, talking about a little bit about appreciative joy and, and all the different aspects of mindfulness in a, in a rather sort of, yeah, in a, in a short way, just sort of dipping our toes into the water of big topics, giving our, our, our colleagues a bit of an understanding about when mindfulness can take us. Great, just sort of building that awareness that it's there and offering it. You know, and this is what I think is so important, this building an ecosystem within an organization where someone like you is able to then, you know, with your awareness of what's happening in that moment, in that particular context, what's called for here. Um, so just, uh, it's a wonderful example of how this works within any context and specifically why it's relevant in a medical context in these current times and what aspects are gonna land well. I see that you are a member of BAMBA, which is the British Association of Mindfulness Teachers. You're really interested to know how you found that. Well, I think BAMBA is, an, is a really important institution in that sense it is you know in foundation it's still constituting itself but i have learned over many years that you know mindfulness creates a lot of enthusiasm in a lot of people um and from all walks of life people come along and say oh mindfulness is fantastic i want to do this i want to teach it and and, and there's some very confident people that go out and say oh well, i've done a course now with john kamat zen and i just now want to go out and teach it to my colleagues in all sorts of settings and i think that's in principle a really great thing what I have noticed over the years is that mindfulness can have sort of un, unwarranted effects or unexpected effects, you know, both, you know, from a physical point of view, people experience all sorts of, you know, unusual uh, sort of experiences, but also it takes a bit of learning, a bit of understanding, a bit of practice, a bit of supervision, a bit of reflection, self-reflection to really do this well. Uh, otherwise, it can be mindfulness is simply taught in the wrong way um, and, and gives the wrong impression of what mindfulness is, you know, that form of self-improvement, self-acceleration, you know, sort of, sort of self-actualization, but also in a very competitive way. And if we teach it in the wrong way, this is really not the message that we want to send. So I think it's important that we have, an, you know, an organization that monitors mindfulness teaching in a way that it's it's taught with integrity and it's taught with from experience from supervision that you're not out of the context and that we set a framework around that in the lightest of all ways i mean in other countries mindfulness is much more heavily regulated uh, also because of you know the financial aspects of it you know people make money out of teaching mm. mindfulness and, and so so people try to protect that market uh this country has been rather flexible and rather open to that and i think that's quite a good approach to have but still i am worried about the integrity of mindfulness and it can be taught in the wrong way it can be taught in a way that people feel under pressure or feel guilty for not doing it the right way it's definitely not the ethos we want to talk so i'm very happy that bamba is taking on the role of regulating and overseeing good mindfulness practice so that we know if somebody's bamba registered we will get good quality mindfulness yeah. teaching 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would totally be my sense. It's quite helpful having these guidelines, as you say, around supervision, attending retreats, embodying it. Because there's a lovely saying that I once heard, which is mindfulness is caught rather than taught. And I think it is something that's quite unusual, this idea of you, know, you really embody mindfulness and people then respond to that. Um, so that's helpful to, to hear your thoughts on it. Gee, what an interesting conversation. I could carry on asking so many questions. But as we draw our, our time together to a close, there's a question that we ask all our guests, which is, if you could give one piece of advice to people wanting to teach in a workplace setting, what might that be? I mean, there, there's so many aspects, but I think the first thing I'd like to do in the mindfulness, you know, in a workplace setting, every setting is different. And, and I think mindfulness is ultimately something that is very universal, but it, it needs to be targeted in a way that it actually hits the spot for the people that receive it. <laughs> so if you want to do mindfulness in your own workplace, go around and ask lots of questions. Go around and ask, what, what do you need? What's, what's relevant? What, what, is, what is in this particular environment that you work in? What, what is bothering you? What is, what is on your mind and what's on your heart? And then sort of, sort of try to understand if you can target it towards that. And I would say that every work environment, as much as obviously certain aspects are very similar, but certain aspects are also very different. Mm. So I think it would be nice to just make it something that is very targeted towards your colleagues uh, or, or the people that you want to teach. Brilliant. I mean, I love what you say, because inherent in that is the ability to listen. And that's one of the key aspects of mindfulness is really listening and hearing what's called for. So you know, I love that bit of advice, which, which at its core embodies what mindfulness is all about. Yeah, mindfulness, yeah. mindfulness is about a lot of things. Yeah. I sometimes like to think, you know, the, the, the teaching that we do is a bit like you've got a, sort of a huge house, a, a palace almost, and we're just literally just opening a door. Uh, and what's in that palace, you know, in, in the different rooms is a lot of stuff, but we, just walking through that door might give us, might open an opportunity to explore some of the rooms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mindfulness has got a lot of different aspects to it um, that are very relevant to being human and being uh, being present in what you know what what's around us and uh, and uh, you know I hope that probably people will actually be invited through what you're doing to to explore it from normal walks of life that makes sense not only in health yeah. yeah what a wonderful image because I think that's exactly it it's you sort of just open this door and you walk in and then who knows what you find and you yeah. then work with that yeah and you, Lauren you, yeah yeah, just thank you so much. What a wonderful opportunity to share this time with you and really appreciate in your busy schedule you carving out this time, which will be invaluable to people taking part in the program. So thank you and really look forward to meeting with our listeners again for our next podcast.